To begin with, this book, the author does not identify himself by name in this letter. There's going to be clues as we read this letter that indicate that the author claims to have spent time with Jesus when he was physically walking on the earth in Israel. Um, The author also uses the pronoun we when identifying these personal connections to Jesus. So it would be safe to conclude that this author was one of the disciples of Jesus when he traveled through Israel. So you'll see that as we start to unpack it. Tradition does hold that the author is the disciple that we know as John, the same disciple that penned the gospel of John. And I think that's a safe conclusion. But just so you know, he didn't identify himself in the writing of the letter. So we have to like look through and make those connections backwards. So we'll start with 1 John, and we're going to do the first four verses. What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with his son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So you can see how it's an interesting letter, the way things are worded. That's why it's going to be really important that we take our time. So back in verse one, how does the letter begin? What was from the beginning what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, we've looked at, touched. So something's important to this author to communicate very clearly, I had personal connection. So there are four clarifiers, all of which John says are concerning what? Look at the end of the verse to see what he was clarifying. The word of life. All right, so John says first that the word of life was what? Going back to the first part of the verse. Was from the beginning. From the beginning of what? It's not perfectly clear, but I will, I will tell you this. If we believe that this is a letter penned by John, then wouldn't you think we could find help in looking at the gospel of John to see if we can make some connections? And so that's where I will take you. Uh, We're going to look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the first three verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So in this... uh, passage of John, verse 1, John says, in the beginning was what? The word. So he's tied beginning and word there for us. The word was what? With God. So the word was not just with God, but what else does he say about the word? That it was God. So we shouldn't be confused on that. It was there in the beginning. It was with God. It is God. So in verse 2, what else is described about that word? 
that he was in the beginning with God. So John says the word is he. Notice he uses the pronoun he when describing the word. So the word is a being, and this being was in the beginning with God. In verse 3, how was the beginning described? All things came into being through him. So what does it mean for something to come into being? He made it. It's created. So it was not in existence, and then it was created, and now it has come into being. That's what that would mean. So the person who was called the Word brought all things into existence. The moment, this moment in time we call creation. So this creation is described in the book of Genesis. And no, we're not going to go and do all the creation in the book of Genesis. <laughs> so back now to 1 John in chapter 1, verse 1. The word of life was from the beginning of what would you say John's referring to? The creation. All right. So you see why it was important we go back? Because there's other interpretations out there of what's the beginning of. But knowing what John penned in his own gospel, we can make, I think, a very simple conclusion. That's what he's talking about when he uses the phrase here. All right. So who in this word of life that was from the beginning, who is this word of life that was from the beginning of creation? The word of life is a reference also to Jesus because that he's the creator. That's what was defined for us. I'm going to take you to another place in scripture to give you more uh, insight to know that it is Jesus. So we're going to go to Colossians chapter one and we'll do verses 12 through 16. Giving thanks to the father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So verse 12, who do we give thanks to in verse 12? To the father. And verse 13, who is the he being referred to in 13? Mm. For he rescued us. So in verse 13, the he has to refer back to who was just identified in 12. Who's identified in 12? The father. Okay, so the father transferred us to the kingdom of who? His beloved son. So who is his beloved son? Jesus, right? So who is the he in verse 15? Jesus, you see why it's important to go back because the pronouns you got to define. Are we talking the father? Or are we talking the son? So verse 16, who is the for by him, all things were created. 
Jesus, Jesus was the creator. That's what we can come to the conclusion of. We got that both when we went back to the Gospel of John, and we have confirmation here in Colossians of the same thing. So now we get to go back to 1 John, all right? 1-1, who was the word of life that was from the beginning? Jesus. Just want to make sure that we're all on board that we're talking about Jesus. Um, what else was true about the word of life? What did John start to say about this word of life? These are going to go back to the clarifiers that he was giving. So he starts with what we have heard, right? Make sure everybody's back in first John in that first verse. We're taking our time. So John is giving witness to the fact that what he's going to testify to, he and the other apostles heard with their own ears. This is not secondhand information. The word of life spoke to them directly. Jesus spoke to the apostles in person. That's what he's clarifying when he says, we heard. So what else is true about the word of life? What's his second qualifier? So what we've seen with our eyes, he's trying to make this very clear. So the apostles saw the word of life or Jesus with their own eyes, and what they share is not secondhand information or what somebody else saw. What is the last thing John says is true about the word of life or Jesus? What we have looked at and touched with our own hands. So again, I want to take you to Luke chapter, uh, yeah, chapter 24. We're going to do verses 36 through 43 because I want to show you in the Gospels where these things are captured and detailed for us so that when John's making reference in 1 John, you know he was one of the people there witnessing. I'm sorry, um, Luke chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 36 and we're going to go through 43. All right, so in Luke chapter 24, verse 36, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. So when Jesus appears to his own disciples, they had doubts. It was him in the flesh after the resurrection. It was too hard to comprehend. And that makes sense. It's why he came back to all of them so that they could hear him and see him and touch him. They had to overcome their doubt. So in verse 37 of this Luke passage, what did the disciples think they saw? They thought they were seeing a spirit. And in verse 39, what does Jesus tell the disciples to do to help them deal with their doubts? He said, my hands, my feet, touch me. It's okay. 
So Jesus also says what? A spirit, it doesn't have flesh and bones, and you see that I do. The evidence is standing before you, and yet they were still struggling with it. So this account given in Luke confirms that the disciples who became the apostles to the church had in fact all seen Jesus after the resurrection with their own eyes. He appeared to them all. So now we get to go back to 1 John. I know it feels like we're never going to get out of that first verse. I promise we will. (laughs) The apostles were looking at Jesus while they touched him with their own hands. John says clearly, we saw the word of life, Jesus, with our eyes when we touched him. So this was confirmed for us in the Luke scripture. John has covered all the bases at the beginning of this letter to be very clear about the testimony of the apostles as eyewitnesses to the events revealed. This sets them apart from many of the false teachers that are going to turn up in the early church. That's what he's setting them up to understand. So uh, verse one ends with concerning the word of life. How is this connected now to verse two? What does he begin verse two? And what was the, and the life was manifested. Okay. What does manifested mean? To make it clear and evident to the eye, right? Of understanding, to show plainly. Since we don't run around and use the word manifested very often, it's very helpful for us to know what it means. So uh, according to the, that verse, what was manifested? The life, right? Whose life was manifested? The word of life, according to that scripture, and we know the word of life is Jesus. So you see how we have to do our observation and figure out how each word pairs together. So it is Jesus's life that was manifested. This is confirmed back again to the gospel of John. We're going to go there several times because I believe the author is the same. So John chapter 21, two verses. We're going to do verse one and verse 14. So gospel of John chapter 21, verse one says, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. I'm not going to read all of the verses in between, but this is the story of the disciples, and they're out fishing, and they haven't caught anything, and Jesus comes along and says, cast your net on the other side, and they do, and then there's so many fish, they can hardly bring in the haul. And then once they do, Jesus is on the shore with them, and it says that he eats the fish and the bread with them. So again, physical manifestation after the resurrection that he's not a spirit, that he's a human. He's a person. He is not a regular human, but you know what I'm saying. He's a being. He's not just spirit. So the end of that, chapter 21, verse 14 says... This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Okay, so the scriptures say, Jesus made clear and evident to the eye and the understanding of the the disciples that he was alive and in the flesh after he was raised from the dead. 
In fact, John says this was the third such manifestation. So back to 1 John chapter 1. We have moved to verse 2. <laughs> what else does John say about this life being manifested to them? Okay, he says, we have seen and we testify and we proclaim to you the eternal life. So John says they all have seen this life and testify to this life and proclaim this life. How does John describe this life? Okay, he's focusing on eternal life. So this testimony of the apostles' witness is that the life which Jesus manifested to them was not just a resurrected life, but is on the eternal life. Do you see the difference? He wants their focus to be on eternal things, not just about the resurrection. So this would indicate there had to be some teaching that was putting the eternal life promise in doubt. So John is drawing clear lines that what the apostles proclaimed was eternal life. And we'll get into more detail about what some of the false teaching was. But this is how we know what false teaching was because John is laying out the difference. He's setting that up for us. Where had this eternal life come from? Which was the, with the Father. What happened with this eternal life? It was manifested to us, so he's repeating that. So remembering the definition of manifested, we can read it like this. The eternal life was made clear and evident to the eye and the understanding of the apostles. The apostles now have this same eternal life that Jesus, the word of life, has. Now, it took a lot of going to other scriptures for us to be able to come to what that conclusion is. And that's why I took time to build through that. Because just reading it the first time through, you're like, what? What did he say? So verse three now, what does John say to those reading this letter? He says, what we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. So the eternal life the apostles have seen and heard, they proclaim or announce can be had by others who believe also. So he's taking is all the things we know and what we can proclaim to you because we're witnesses. Now he's going to take the next step and we're going to proclaim it. You can have it too. That's the opening of the gospel. So when someone becomes a believer and has this proclaimed eternal life, what else do they have with the apostles according to that verse? so that you too may have fellowship with us. That's, that's the connection he's making. What does John declare is true for the apostles? And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he's establishing where their fellowship is. He's asking for the new believers to understand you can have this fellowship. So you fellowship with us, but ultimately the fellowship is with the Father and the Son. Verse 4, what is the result of the apostles sharing this information with others? He says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So when these apostles share what they have in eternal life with others, 
to join them in this eternal life, it brings joy. That it is not just for themselves, but now is a joy because they can share it with others to join them. And they are in fellowship with them. Uh, I'll give you one reference in um, third John. So the third letter of John in verses three and four say this. Again, this is why we can look through the letters and find these common threads. He says, for I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in truth. So do you see the gospel being proclaimed, called the truth, and how once in the truth, the children were walking in the truth. And that is what brings joy to this author. So now back in 1 John, we're going to do verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Just figured you all might as well go through the conviction with me. So that's what we're sharing here. (laughs) So verse five, what does John share next? He says, This message that we've heard from him and now announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So who is the first him referring to in that verse? Back to Jesus. And we look back to verse three, if you wanted confirmation of where you would go to look for that. So the fellowship is with the father first, and then he finishes with the son, Jesus Christ. So this last object is God's son, Jesus Christ. So that's where we can make that connection in verse five. What did God's son, Jesus Christ, give? He said, this is the message we've heard from him. So just so you know, there are no there are uh, there are words spoken by Jesus that did not make it into the scriptures and for those that have the red letters you wouldn't find it in the red letters of your bible but these disciples walked with him for 3 years and i'm sure they're able to remember words he spoke to them that did not necessarily make it into any of the gospels does that make sense cuz some people would say well there's nowhere it said that jesus said those words John said he said those words, and John just got through telling you, I walked with him, I saw him, I heard him. This is what he had to testify. So what were the apostles to do with that message once they heard it? We need to announce it to you. They knew that they just couldn't keep it inside them. They needed to announce it to others. And the message that he said was spoken was what? He said, God is light, and in him... God, there is no darkness at all. So John introduces 
a contrast between light and darkness. He often uses this contrast in his writings. If you read the Gospel of John, you will see that often. So what do we know about this contrast in spiritual terms? Good and evil. And just so we don't just throw it out there and come to that conclusion, I think it's helpful if we go to a few scriptures that would give us that and help us come to that conclusion. So what does the scriptures have to say about light? And I figured it was good to stay safe and stay in the Gospel of John. So Gospel of John Chapter 8, we're just going to do verse 12. John chapter 8, verse 12 says, Then Jesus spoke again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So light is the good thing established there. We're making an assumption since they're comparing that darkness would be the bad thing, right? That's how a contrast works. So where in scripture can we see that darkness is, is defined for us? And I will tell you ahead of time, if you do a word study on your own, there's a lot of light and darkness comparison. Job is filled with it. The Psalms are filled with it. It's all over the Gospel of John. It's throughout Acts. So we're not going to do an exhaustive comparison. We're just going to go with a few verses so that there's confirmation that darkness is the bad thing. Uh, I'm going to take you to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. So Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We'll also go to Daniel. I sprinkled through and did some looks. I have about three scriptures for the comparison now of what darkness is. We find darkness compared to evil and light in Daniel chapter 2, verse 22. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 22 It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. So in Daniel, we learn that he, God, who is being referred to in that scripture, knows what's in the darkness. He's not ignorant of it. Remember, God is always sovereign. He knows what's in the darkness. So this is also seen in the story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. So we'll read a little bit longer section here. This is Acts chapter 26. And we're going to do verses 14 through 18. Acts 26 verses 14 through 18. And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you and to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, 
from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Wow, there's a lot packed in there. So here's the connections. When Jesus reveals himself to Paul and to be a witness concerning Jesus, and he describes his assignment and his calling, he describes the darkness as the dominion of Satan. And where sin is, that must be forgiven. So he ties in that last verse, he ties those things together. So let me repeat that. He says, he describes the darkness as the dominion of Satan, where sin is, that must be forgiven. That's the summary I would have for that very last verse 18. If you want to do homework, and I know some of you just don't have enough to do and you'd like to do, I would suggest you take some time if you have a way to do a word search where you can find where the light and darkness are compared within the scriptures because there's a lot and there's no way you can't read all of those and go, light is good, darkness is bad. All right, so back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. Why does John say it's important for us to know what darkness is? He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness we lie and we do not practice the truth so what does it mean for someone to say first of all they have fellowship with God they say I know God I'm in relationship with God if they say I'm in fellowship they're saying I have a relationship with God that's what they're saying so someone can say they have fellowship with God But then do what? They walk in the darkness. So they walk in the dominion of Satan. They walk with a need for forgiveness of sin. So to walk in the darkness is to walk with Satan and and need that forgiveness. So what is true about someone who says they have fellowship with God, but then walk in that dominion of Satan, according to that verse? They lie and they do not practice the truth. What are we lying about, according to that verse, if we walk in the darkness? About having fellowship with God. That's the ultimate lie. So if we do not have this fellowship with God, we can't do what? Practice the truth. All right, so we're going to tie that together. We can't pretend to have this fellowship with God or claim to know God when we walk in the dominion of Satan in unforgiven sin at the same time. They cannot coexist. So let's look at an example in our own life experience to help bring this together, because sometimes it's hard, all right? In our personal relationships, we can experience and display angers to others, right? If we work through where the anger comes from, we will often find that it comes from a fear or a hurt that we've endured, that that's often where the anger comes from. So we can have the feeling of hurt or fear at the same time that we have the anger. So these emotions can exist at the same time, even though they seem to be contrary emotions. The opposite would be looking at feelings that can't exist at the same time, like 
anger and apathy, or love and apathy. These emotions don't coexist. You have to have one or the other. Does that example make sense? Because sometimes you're like, well, yeah, I can have anger. And then when I track it back, it's because I've been hurt. But those can coexist in somebody. But love and apathy, those don't coexist. You have one or you have the other. You can't have both. So tying that back, John says, you cannot be in fellowship with God and walk in unforgiven or unrepentant sin at the same time. They can't coexist. So our behavior is not separate from the relationship with God. In verse 7, what must be present in our life to be in fellowship with God? He says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So we can only have this fellowship with God as we walk in the light. This is not about fellowship with other Christians. That's not what he's just been talking about. He's been talking about a fellowship with God. So the focus is on the fellowship with God the Father. If think about it, ladies, there's a lot of times even we can have things that we are in rebellion about. That doesn't mean our other Christian friends know about it. So this is about breaking fellowship with God because of this sin that he's talking about. So what allows us to walk in the light according to this verse? He says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So when we believe in the gospel and by faith believe our sin is taken away by the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus, then we walk in the true light. The scripture uses the word sin here in the singular to emphasize that this is the sin that we are born with that needs the blood of Christ. It is not just the sins that we commit. So his focus here is a true understanding of the original sin that man needs to be forgiven for that only comes by the blood of Christ. In verse eight, what can't coexist. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. To declare we have no sin to be forgiven, John says we are doing what first? We're deceiving ourselves. If that's the attitude, I don't have that original sin, that doesn't make, I don't need to have that forgiveness, then deceiving of self is the first thing that's happening. What else does John say is true if we declare we have no sin to be forgiven? Truth's not in you. So these two things can't exist together. You can't claim to have no sin and have truth in you at the same time. Verse 9, what truth needs to exist in us? If we confess our sins, all right, so this is an ongoing process. We need to learn what sin is by our study of the Bible and through communion with God through prayer. Once we recognize we have sin, we then must confess that sin to God. The scriptures here say sins plural. 
So in the plural, it's to underscore that our confession of sins is the ongoing process. What is true about God when we confess our sins? He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What an amazing promise that we need to remember every day. I need to remember every day. So verse 10, what is the opposite of confessing our sins? If we say that we, are, that we have not sinned, so what is a declaration of someone claiming to have no sin do? We make him a liar. That's where it begins. We make him to be a liar. So we know God is not a liar. So if we say we have not sinned, then what is true about us? We don't have the word. It's not in us. What word is his word? And we would tie this back to verse one. What was the word of life? Jesus. So if we declare that we have not sinned, then we do not have the word of life or Jesus in us, which means we have no fellowship with God. If someone says they have no sin, they would have no need for a savior. If someone says they have no sin, there was never any conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit on that person. And therefore, there was no need for Jesus. So as we move through this letter from John, we're going to see a pattern unfold in what John is teaching about a true fellowship with God and a falsely declared relationship with God. We will review these patterns in regards to the false teaching that was present in John's day, as well as the parallels to the false teaching over church history, as well as what is clearly evident in the current teachings that we can find in the church. Do you see what makes this letter a little difficult to understand? It seems like there's these contrasts. You're like, okay, wait a minute. There's this whole sin thing, and I'm supposed to be forgiven for sin. But if I don't say I have sin, but I'm supposed to walk in the light, and only if I'm in the light. So that's why you have to separate it out. So the person who walks in darkness is a person who doesn't understand sin and is therefore not needed a Savior and come to Jesus. That's one declaration that John's making. The other declaration is... If you do have Jesus, you still need to understand your sin and bring it to the Father so that it can be put in the light and you can have fellowship with the Father. And he is faithful and righteous to forgive it. But do you see how those two seem to be all melded together and it's hard to separate them out? There are those who declare to have a relationship with God and John is laying out there for you, but their lives don't reflect that. They still live in the dominion of Satan and they have sin that has not been forgiven. We call those people unbelievers. Unbelievers that don't have the blood of Jesus covering their sin can still be declaring to have a relationship with God. We see it all the time. It was evident in Paul's day and it's evident throughout church history and it's evident today. He's also instructing the believer what they're supposed to acknowledge about sin. 
Your original sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus. You have comfort in that. You have fellowship with the Father. But in continuation of knowing there's going to be sins, you need to be confessing those sins so that you stay in the light, that you stay in fellowship with the Father. And that would be the overview for John, 1 John chapter 1.